0: This morning, we are turning to a book that's, uh, well, it's kind of in the yellow pages of our Bible. Uh, We are looking at the minor prophet Nahum. And uh, when I was speaking to Pastor Bill, uh, I said, you know, Bill, I've read this book now repeatedly. It's only three chapters. It's a very short book. And I said, I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to present it this week and then finishing next week. And I said, I think I I might actually present it as as one sermon in two parts. And Bill shrugged his shoulders and said, do what you want. I don't think anybody out there is going to say, well, that's not the way this one did it, or that's not the way that one did it, because uh, how many times have we read, much less studied, the prophet Nahum. But actually, Nahum is the sequel to Jonah. You know, Hollywood has learned that um, a sequel to a movie is a good way to make money. And if the movie is good, people want to know what happens next in the storyline. Well, it may be a surprise to you to learn that uh, Jonah, the book that uh, Pastor Bill just concluded last Sunday, has a sequel. It's not like some books in the Bible that, that are listed first and second. There is no second Jonah. But nonetheless, there is a sequel. What's curious is that in this sequel... Jonah is not even mentioned. However, the main character in the book of Jonah is also the main character in the prophet Nahum. And, of course, that main character is the Lord God. Now, if you were here during the series Uh, in Jonah, no doubt you uh, remember that Jonah was more or less a reluctant prophet. God sent him to Nineveh, but in fact what Jonah did was book passage on a ship and go in the very opposite direction. And there were multiple reasons for that, Uh, one of which was The Assyrian people were known for their cruelty, for their violence, and for their oppression of the countries that they would engulf. Uh, And no doubt there was the fear factor in Jonah, but there was another factor, and that was revealed a little bit later in the book of Jonah, and that was that he was to preach a message that required the people of Nineveh to repent, or there would be judgment. And Jonah was afraid that they would repent and so that was another reason why he didn't want to go to Nineveh, because the Ninevites were a hated and fearful and violent people. And that's exactly what happened. Jonah preached, the reluctant prophet a very short message, and as a result of that, there was a massive conversion. The king, all the way down to cattle, was was dressed in sackcloth and ashes, uh, symbols of mourning. There was great repentance among the people, and as a result of that, judgment was averted. Unfortunately, it didn't last very long in Nineveh. Because less than forty years later, the Ninevites were on the prowl once again, and attacked and sacked the northern kingdom of Israel. And because of that, God decided, and Nahum ministered about a hundred and fifty years after Jonah. God decided that their oppression had come to an end, that he was going to intervene and Nahum was going to bring a message of doom and condemnation finally upon this violent empire. Now, we don't know very much about Nahum, Uh, We know in chapter 1 and verse 1 that uh, he was from the town of Elkosh, probably in the southern part of the kingdom of Judah, Uh, but that's about all we know. We know that his name, Nahum, in Hebrew, Naham means consolation or comfort which is rather curious because the main emphasis, as you read the book of Nahum, was an emphasis on judgment, on condemnation. And yet, through it all, we see that there are Uh, periodic verses that serve as islands of refuge for those that are trusting in God. So while there is, on the one hand, condemnation over the violence and oppression of the Assyrian people, on the other hand, there is a message of comfort and consolation upon God's people. And we see those two themes uh, beautifully in poetic language woven uh, throughout uh, the, these three chapters, and especially we'll notice that in chapter 1. So Nahum delivers a series of short poems consoling Judah while pronouncing the downfall of Assyria one of Israel's worst oppressors. Now, Nahum's approach is brilliant. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as we'll see when we just start reading in a few moments, Nahum begins with the presentation of the character of God. And that's critical in the structure of Nahum because Nahum communicates to his readers that God is qualified to be judge because of who He is. That's an important part of understanding Nahum, but it's also an important part of understanding the whole theme of biblical judgment throughout the Word of God, that the basis of judgment is always based on the character of God. If there is no judgment, there can be no justice. And if there is no justice, then God cannot be God. And so Nahum presents a very logical and coherent argument, and so he begins uh, with a presentation on the character of God so that we must filter the judgment of God through the eyes of the judge. He has a right to judge because of who He is. So if we were to divide Nahum into a brief two-point outline, chapter 1 would be basically who God is. It's a beautiful description in poetic and figurative language that Noam presents. Chapters 2 and 3 is really a capsule of God lowering the boom on this nation. We see in chapter 2, it's a description of the destruction of Nineveh and the Ninevite people. And then in chapter 3, it's the destruction of Assyria as a whole. And next week, if you're bold enough to come back, we will see some specific uh, prophecies of Nahum miraculously fulfilled uh, in chapters two and three. Now, in chapter one, and as as Nahum presents a sketch of the character of God. Um, we see a a beautiful presentation of the theology of who God is, and he focuses on three aspects of God, God's justice, God's power, and God's mercy. And specifically, as we read through chapter 1, we'll see that Nahum presents God as one who is inflexible in his justice, inexhaustible in His power, and infinite in His mercy. So God contrasts in chapter 1 uh, the difference in standing between the people of God, Judah, on the one hand, and the Ninevites on the other hand. So by way of introduction uh, completed, let's, uh, let's look now In uh, chapter 1 and begin reading together. An oracle concerning Nineveh. Actually, the Hebrew word for oracle that's translated oracle is a burden, okay? The burden placed on the heart of Nahum concerning Nineveh, and of course, Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. So Nahum begins with... uh, a description of God, and describes God first and foremost that the Lord is jealous. Now, when we hear that description of God, it might cause us to just be perhaps a bit perplexed in in how we see God as jealous. It might even cause us to just feel perhaps a bit uncomfortable? How do do we understand God as jealous? And I think a part of that discomfort, if we feel uh, any discomfort at all, probably comes from the notion that when we use the word jealous or jealousy, it's uh, almost always in a negative connotation. And that's the difference between human jealousy and divine jealousy. We need to remind ourselves that God's jealousy doesn't come through a filter of sin nature like our jealousy. Think of it this way. Human jealousy is envy over what belongs to someone else, If you read in Galatians 5, for example, the Apostle Paul describes jealousy as a work of the flesh in contrast of the work of the Spirit. So clearly, human jealousy is a negative trait. But when it is applied to the Lord God, divine jealousy, God becomes jealous over what belongs to Him alone. You see, God's jealousy is not uh, apparent through a sinful nature, and that then becomes for us a positive trait. Now, when we look at the jealousy of God, we, we see that jealousy on three different levels. First, God is jealous for His own honor and glory. Now, when you hear that, you might think just for a moment, well, that seems to make God seem a little self-centered, right? Well, yeah, He's God. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things. And so when we look at Uh, the jealousy of God for his own honor and for his own glory. We must look at God for who he is. We must look at God through his perfections and through his character as the one who created us. It's interesting also that whenever we are uh, confronted with the jealousy of God, it is always in the context of idolatry. You see, idolatry basically is when someone has a master passion for something or someone, and God is jealous for his own glory and honor because he wants to be our master passion. Because in so doing, we then are guaranteed our best as we walk this earthly pilgrimage. Does that make sense? when God's honor and glory is our focus, then we never settle for second best. In Exodus chapter 34 and verse 14, we read these words, For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Over in Ezekiel chapter 20 or 38, after Ezekiel spends a a short time describing uh, wrath and judgment, God speaks and says this, So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am The Lord. You see, his jealousy is based on his character. Where's the competition? In Isaiah chapter 40, we read, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Now, Assyria's arrogance was well established. When a nation overtook another nation, it was not only in a, a conquering of the people, but it was also understood as a conquering of their gods. Our God or gods are stronger and more mighty and more powerful than your gods. And that's a rub against our God. And so, God makes it very clear as we read through the book of Nahum that their arrogance is addressed by God. Later in chapter 1, we read God speaking through Nahum, who is this wicked counselor of yours who plots evil against the Lord? Notice, not against the Lord's people, but evil against the Lord. And then in verse 14, I will destroy all the idols in the temples of your gods. See, God is saying, you didn't take me captive. I merely used you to do my will as an expression of judgment on the kingdom of Israel. And that happened in 722. Again, about 40 years after the ministry of Jonah. But God said, don't have the mistaken impression that because you conquered the nation Israel, that you have me in a cage. And we see throughout these few chapters, God speaking and addressing the arrogance of the Assyrian nation. In chapter 3, God says, through Nahum, and now I will lift your skirts and show all the earth your nakedness and shame. And then later in verse 12 of chapter 3, all your fortresses will fall. They will be devoured like ripe figs that fall into the mouths of those who shake the trees." God is saying, you see the mighty walls, the, the high walls of, of the, the city of Nineveh? You think that is your source of protection? And we'll see next week uh, some of the specific prophecies and what the historians who lived back in this day uh, recorded, some of the events that took place when Babylon finally did, in 612, conquer the city of Nineveh. God says, "Your protection, your security of these walls." you know how easy it will be? It will be like shaking a ripe fig tree and just watching all the figs to fall to the ground. In verse uh, chapter two, God describes the city as, as a city of lions who rip their prey violently apart. And yet, God says, You think you captured me? In chapter three, he calls them, in today's parlance, rather uh, politically incorrect, but he calls them weak and helpless women. So, first of all, God is jealous for his own glory and his own honor. Secondly, God is jealous for what he loves. God is jealous for what he loves. God is jealous when those he loves are abused, threatened, or mistreated. And so, he arrives on the scene to protect little Judah before Assyria could then target the southern part of the kingdom and engulf this kingdom into their own. That's a beautiful understanding. You know, rather than uh, causing us to feel a bit uncomfortable when we hear that God is jealous, it should be a matter of great rejoicing. Because, for example, when we read the Apostle Paul's writing in Romans chapter 8, what does he say? But that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you hear that? What can separate us from the love of God? Okay, on three. Ready? One, two, three. Oh, that was pathetic. Come on. One, two, three nothing, nothing. Not the accuser of the brethren, as the the devil is, is called in Revelation 12. And guess what? Not even yourself, because we tend to be our most severe critics, don't we? How can God love me when I continue to struggle with the same thing? How can God forgive that yet one more time? And yet, we read that God is jealous for us because he is jealous for the ones he loves. In his uh, masterpiece called Knowing God, J.I. Packer writes this. And listen to this, because in this sentence, every word weighs a pound, okay? Packer writes, God's jealousy is a praiseworthy zeal How about that a praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious that's the jealousy of god over us and that should bring us great joy and comfort Thirdly, and quickly, God's not just jealous for His own glory and honor. He's not just jealous for that which He loves, but He is jealous for His Son. He is jealous for His Son, which becomes the the pivot point of all judgment. Included in three of the Gospels in the New Testament is the story of the parable that Jesus tells of the evil vine growers. You probably remember that story, but just to briefly remind you, this was the landlord who leased a portion of land as a vineyard, and as a portion of the payment, they were to give a percentage of the, of the harvest uh, to the landlord as payment for the land. So when that time arrived, the landlord sent a representative and as the story goes, the, the people who were operating the vineyard uh, beat the, this, this man and threw him out of the vineyard. And then he sent another and another. And then the story basically, this is God sending messengers through the prophets through the, in the Old Testament and the way they were treated by the nation. And finally, the landlord said, I will send my son. Surely they will respect him. And they sent. he sent his son, and the, the miserable wretches in the vineyard said, this is the son. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And then Jesus asks the question, what will God do? What would the landlord do with those miserable wretches? And the answer was not pretty. They will be dealt with most harshly. If you take one big takeaway from that parable, it's this. God rejects those who reject his son. God rejects those who reject his son. Now, there's two ways that we could reject the son. We can reject him with a clenched fist, or we can reject him with a shrugged shoulder. One is more of a violent rejection, the other is more of an apathetic um, yes and rejection. And so, the message for us in Nahum is that judgment is a part of God's character because judgment is a part of justice, which is true of God. And so, whether it's the Israelites that he is consoling and protecting, or whether it's the Ninevites, we too need to ask ourselves, Which side of judgment am I on? Am I an object of God's jealous love, or do I shake my fist or just shrug my shoulders at the whole thing? And and have some other kind of master passion as my idol. In 1 Corinthians 16.22, Paul writes this, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. God is jealous for His Son. So we see the inflexible uh, justice of God And I see we're also running a little short on time. Let me just close by reading verse 3. And what we'll do next week is we will finish chapter 1, and we will weave in some of these prophetic utterances in chapters 2 and 3. So I don't want you to think that that bed over there is going to be used before we finish Nahum. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. So we could begin to see now that uh, not only is Nahum presenting the inflexible justice of God, but now he's beginning to show us the inexhaustible power of God. He declares that the clouds are the dust of His feet. Do you ever get tired of these gray days during the winter? I know I do. My wife and I sometimes will say, man, I don't remember the last time I saw the sun. Well, I began to look at the clouds a little differently this week. I began to see the clouds as the dust of His feet, and I saw a, a new picture of the power of God. But if you notice, what Nahum does here is exactly what Jonah did. Jonah quoted a passage describing God's character from Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Now, Jonah quoted the first part of that promise, that he was a God of forgiveness and long suffering. In fact, that was Jonah's complaint, if you remember. Jonah basically said, I knew it, I knew it. You are a God who is a God of love and steadfast love and and forgiveness and faithfulness. Nahum quotes part two of the verse, but will by no means clear the guilty. And so here we see that beautiful theme woven in Uh, and we see it throughout the book of Nahum, where we see judgment upon those who shake their fist at God, and yet consolation for those who belong to Him. So, as we conclude uh, week one, uh, I invite you back next week. We will finish Nahum. It's only three chapters, and now that you have your your feet wet, sort of, dipping your uh, big toe into the pool, so to speak. Uh, I would encourage you to uh, read these three chapters uh, throughout the week. It won't take you very long, but uh, you could read them with a fresh understanding of of the character of God developed in chapter 1 and how God is a fortress and a, a place of security and safety for those who belong to Him. Uh, But at the same time, there is a place of judgment and and fear and, yes, hopelessness uh, for those who are arrogant and go their own way and basically reject Him. So I would encourage you today, if if you're not sure where you are on your spiritual journey, today would be the day where you could say, Lord, uh, I don't want to be on the other side of your judgment. Uh, and I ask you to come into my life to forgive me of my sins, and I want you to become my master passion, and I want to experience your best for me as I walk this uh, earthly pilgrimage with you. Would you pray with me? Lord, we uh, we thank you that through the book of Nahum, we see the beautiful balance, Lord, of uh, your infinite mercy, and yet at the same time, Father, your uh, capacity is as our perfect judge uh, to judge and to judge justly. We pray, Lord, that uh, the Spirit of God would encourage our hearts, Lord, in our walk with you, and that we would see ourselves as, as precious in your sight, and that you are jealous for us. and We're thankful for that. We're thankful for who we are in your eyes uh, because of whose we are. We belong to you through the Lord Jesus Christ and our faith in him. We become sons and daughters of God, and for that, Father, we are grateful. Thank you that we belong to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.